Hello and welcome back to the 17th, maybe, I don't know, episode of Making Fun of Dead People. And I'm really thankful for all the support that you guys have been giving with the show. It really means a lot. I did put up a website. If you guys want to check it out, I'd really appreciate it. If you sign up to the mailing list, eventually I'm going to be getting together a mailing list of scheduled updates. I'm going to be putting updates on the website as well. One of the things, if you're willing to support the show, we are looking for donations just to support the operating costs, things like the, mostly it's the subscription services. Fuck, they're everywhere today. Everything you do, they want you to sign up for a subscription, the days of owning something, like the World Economic Forum says is over. I mean, it's really true. Anyhow, so we're going to be talking about the Highway of Tears and Israel Keys today. And I wanted to introduce you again to some of his potential crimes in Canada, but I also want to highlight it's an epidemic of missing Indigenous women, also murdered Indigenous women in Canada that's been ongoing. It's likely the result of some social and systematic institutional racism type issues. Okay, on we go. The Highway of Tears is a 724 stretch of 724 kilometer stretch of Highway 16 in British Columbia. It's a tragic microcosm of the missing murdered indigenous women crisis, the MIW, and it's been like this since 1969. Numerous indigenous women have gone missing along this stretch, and I think officially the police, the RCMP, recognize 18 victims, but indigenous groups and communities who advocate for the cause to solve these crimes say that there's a number between 40 and 50. IW state or sorry I think it's IWG it's actually missing and murdered indigenous women and girls is an acronym that's used to describe the tragedies affecting this indigenous community across Canada US the US and around the world the cause relates to sorry the whole cause or the movement behind this relates to the is related to the alarming rates at which indigenous women and girls experience violence disappearances and murders statistics in canada reveal a deeply concerning picture while indigenous women make up four percent of canada's female population they count for approximately 16 percent of all female homicides that's it's truly terrifying to think of the fact that you have a victim group that is such a significant, significantly higher rate than the rest of the female population in Canada. And it just, I don't know, it's scary. So human trafficking is also an issue that we're going to jump into that gravely affects Indigenous women disproportionately. This is the case in any social group where there's been inequality and also this long-standing generational trauma, essentially, and generational kind of break in their spirit, man. Like the Canadians didn't do a lot of great things to the Indigenous population, and it was like it caused a perfect storm for indigenous women and girls to be victims to really sick people from the start of colonization there was a forced assimilate assimilation of indigenous people into the residential system where they essentially where they were raped beaten killed and murdered as you've seen in the news with all the poor kids that lost their lives at these places and broke generations of people to come. It's truly like one of the greatest atrocities in not only history, like modern history, like history. It's truly, you didn't, it's not just about the people that lost their lives. Like they've truly broken an entire group of people or entire generation, sorry, of people through trying to make them better Catholics, essentially. It's terrible. Along with, so you have that history there that's created socioeconomic disadvantages. So with breaking that generation and hurting all these people, it comes with the social aspects. What do you do? You turn things like substance use to numb out the feelings and that kind of gets, we know how that happens. It gets passed down through gener to the next generation and this cycle continues. And I also want to point out that this isn't like old history. I think it was in, up into the 90s, there were still residential schools. So yeah, it's pretty recent. And not to mention like there was things like the Project Montreal where the CIA and the Canadian government was using Indigenous people to run 
psychological mind control experiments on. The other part is that a lot of traditional indigenous communities are also in remote areas and areas that don't have access to social supports. And like predators know this. Predators know right away that the police don't treat indigenous or didn't historically, I don't know about currently, did not treat indigenous cases as seriously as when a white person would disappear. So with all the systematic racism, it also would lead to things like where essentially police wouldn't even investigate some of the cases when indigenous women would go missing because they would just slough it off to they went missing because they were out drinking or whatever other racist excuse was acceptable at that time. So there's no there's no shortage of reasons why a predator would prey upon indigenous women in Canada during these times because they literally were not protected and it's terrifying and it's sad. Back to exactly what the Highway of Tears is, I want to explain the area because it's going to come, the geographic part of the region is going to come into play a little bit later in the podcast. So this several hundred kilometer stretch of highway, and it goes between Prince George and Prince Rupert. The official RCMP investigations cover that entire stretch and cover a period between 1969 to 2006, the official RCMP investigations recognize 18 victims. As I mentioned before, there is upwards of probably 40 to 50, according to indigenous groups, which I tend to take that as the most, I tend to believe more on that side, just because of the way they're community, small communities. So if they're telling you people are missing, they're missing. Geographically, though, the Highway of Tears is really remote. So there's not a lot of cities and there's not a lot of things in between towns. So there's not like, if you run out of gas, you're on your own. It's forest and animals and your mountains. Good luck. So the highway that goes through there kind of spreads, like it really goes through a bunch of ecosystems through a lot of like lakes, forests, rugged mountains, and some sprawling plateaus. It's remoteness, though is what makes it truly scary in terms of like people going missing. They're not being witnesses. Sometimes people don't realize people are missing for days and out there with weather, rain, traffic, all those things, like all the evidence when somebody goes missing is potentially washed away. And lastly, it is again, because these small communities aren't serviced like other communities in the areas or like bigger metropolitan centers. People will hitchhike, especially if you have issues where people, one, I'll just, people literally will hitchhike to get to appointments, hitchhike to get to work for all kinds of different reasons. But then you also have people hitchhiking because they have no other way to, whether it's access the drugs or substances that they may need, or maybe they're like, if they're an addict, they may be seeking out like addiction, seeking behaviors, seeking out things like heroin or whatever. And we all know that this can like lead to those high risk behaviors where people are sex working and they're also willing to do things they normally wouldn't do to get the drugs like hitchhike. So in some of the cases you'll see where it's like people that are in that category that we just discussed where they go missing on this highway and it's just, it, nobody really clues into it. Like in a lot of sad cases where you know, sex workers and people addicted to drugs are just their cases were swept under the rugs in the olden days. So in regards to some of the more notable crimes that have happened along the highway, actually a few things, one thing I want to point out too, is that there is some crimes that have been solved. Lauren Don Leslie is born in 1995. She's a remarkable, resilient 15 year old girl from Fraser Lake, British Columbia. She's legally blind but she's truly passionate about helping others and doesn't let that stop her. With her compassionate heart and radiant smile, she quickly became known for her desire to make a difference in the world. But Lauren's life was tragically cut short in a crime that shook her and the entire community. On November 27, 2010, Lauren was reported missing by her father. After she failed to return home the same evening, a young man named Cody Legikoff was pulled over by the RCMP near Highway 27 for a routine traffic stop. 
The officer noted blood on Lebedkov's clothes and face. He claimed it was from poaching a deer. Suspicious, the RCMP traced his tracks back to the snow and it led to a remote cabin off the side of Highway 27. They made a horrifying discovery once they entered inside, Lauren's body. It didn't take long for investigators to connect the dots. Subsequent investigations revealed the presence of Lauren's blood and personal items in his vehicle. Forensic evidence also connected him to three other women, Jill Stachanko, Cynthia Moss, and Natasha Montgomery. These murders all occurred within the previous 14 months, making Ledikoff one of Canada's youngest serial killers at only 20 years old. The brutality of Lauren's death, combined with his youth, made this a crime that was picked up internationally. There was a lot of media attention, and it truly sent shockwaves across the country, but it still left a lot of unanswered questions. He's way too young, obviously, to commit most of the crimes that occurred along the Highway of Tears, but he... It's truly suspected that there may have been... It's not just suspected, it's it is without a doubt that there was other killers, possibly serial killers operating along that area. Alberta Williams, 24 year old indigenous woman from the Gitsan nation was last seen alive in August, 1989 during the Merlin warnings hours outside of Prince Rupert bleat. Alberta Williams is a 24 year old indigenous woman. She's last seen alive in August of 1989 in the early morning hours outside of a bar in Prince Rupert, British Columbia. She had been celebrating the end of a local canneries packing season with friends and co-workers. Alberta was reported missing shortly after she didn't return home, and her body was discovered in September 1989 by the Taiyi Overpass, not far from the Highway of Tears. Her case quickly went cold with no substantial leads or suspects. The sense of loss was profound for the family and local community. What made it all more horring are hair delete. What truly made it harrowing is the complete lack of evidence, lack of closure. Her family had no answers. Her case has become one of the many unsolved Highway of Tears cases. And Alberta's case languishes in like her family's member. It's a painful open wound and they've never stopped seeking justice. Her sister, Claudia Williams, tirelessly pushed to keep the case alive, fighting to ensure her sister's story wouldn't be forgotten. Alberta's case received a renewed attention in 2016 when the CBC highlighted it on a podcast about missing and murdered Indigenous women called Who Killed Alberta Williams? And during the podcast's investigation, a man who had been a person of interest in the original case was interviewed. And he claims that another man who is now deceased is claimed for her disappearance. However, there's no... This has never been com confirmed from the police agency investigating. You can decide for yourself what that means. Another kind of more well-known case is Ramona Wilson. On June 11, 1994, Ramona, a bright and vibrant young 16-year-old Indigenous girl from Smithers, British Columbia, tells her family she's heading to a friend's house to discuss a trip to a local music festival. She never returns home. She was a student at Smithers Secondary School, and Ramona was known for her infectious smile, her love of sports, and also music. She had dreams of becoming a nurse, and her again, her disappearance sends shockwaves throughout her family in the small town that she came from. For 10 months, her family organizes search parties, they blanket the community with posters, and plead for information about Ramona's whereabouts. Despite these efforts, and an official investigation by the Royal Canadian Mountain Police, there's no answers. A tragic discovery finally occurs on April 1995, and local residents unfortunately find Ramona's remains near the Smithers Airport. It's a short distance away from Highway 16. At least she was able to be buried or give some kind of closure to her family, but they were not able to determine a cause of death. Or sorry, it was never publicly disclosed. So her case has been also featured by the CBC and there's never been like, it's just, I can't imagine what that family goes through. There's no answers and it certainly doesn't seem like there's even any hope of there being answers because it's truly 
It feels like it would take a miracle for somebody to solve it after this many years. And it's truly just another sad case of someone disappearing along that highway. Next up, we have somebody named Ayla Sarek Oje. Ayla, Ayla is a bright 14-year-old girl. So Ayla is from the, the Lahidli Tene First Nation, and she was last seen by her family on February 2nd, 2006. She had gone to a shopping mall, the Pine Center Mall in Prince George, BC, with her siblings and a few of her friends, and she unfortunately never returns home. The community quickly rallies around, and an extensive search is performed. Search parties come to the local area and basically make information available to the local media, but there's no trace of her. Tragically, a week after her disappearance, her body is found by a motorist off of Highway 16 near Prince George. Her remains were spotted in a ditch beside the, beside the notorious road, and it added her name to a growing list of young women who meet their tragic end along the Highway of Tears. Ayla's case quickly gained significant media attention due to her young age and the circumstances of her disappearance. The coverage renewed the focus of safety, renewed the focus of safety of Indigenous women and girls in northern BC, leading to an increased call of government action, in particular to the lack of, afford of affordable and safe public transportation along Highway 16, a fact believed to have contributed to many of the disappearances and murders that are now under a lot of scrutiny. So yeah, I had mentioned before, people were hitchhiking, and I was going to point out, like even where I'm from in northern Ontario, there's still people that do this on a lot between some of the more remote First Nation communities. If you go up towards Pickle Lake and that, Mishkigaming, up towards Red Lake, there's there's no other way for people to get back and forth to town sometimes. And yeah, like people are hitchhiking and it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. So yeah, we have, these are just a couple of cases to highlight the stories. Because if you take those stories of those poor young women and... It's just told over and over again over the last 40 or 50 years. Just, it's staggering the amount of people that have gone missing in that area. There's a lot of theories as to why, like why that area. The first thing that sticks in my mind is, yes, it makes sense that it's a very remote, it's an area that because of the way it's designed or the public transportation, young women are hitchhiking and you, like unfortunately like in our society you look with those rates like young women in this case are more vulnerable it's just a dangerous thing to do and a dangerous thing for them to be out there and they didn't really have it in some cases they don't really have a choice that's just the way that's the way you have to do it and so that makes a lot of sense but there's also a lot of other theories the serial killer theories like cody was obviously caught and also there's some speculation that israel keys operated in that area only living, I think, about 600 kilometers away. So over the years, there's been like a ton of theories. Actually, I think, I can't remember where I watched this. There was somebody who was talking about UFO abductions. It was a little bit out there, but the theories, there's a lot of theories, but the serial killer thing definitely sits with me a little bit because I'm, they're not, the people that, that are doing this, as you get to learn, aren't necessarily stupid and they would have caught on to this trend no doubt and not only that just the remoteness of the area also provided the ability for random straight but more random types of killings as well by somebody it's just it was a it's a bad situation so prominent among the serial killer theories is American felon named Bobby Jack Fowler, who was active in the 70s and 80s and worked along the highway corridor. Though he was confirmed to have killed one girl inspected and suspected in two other casement cases, though he was confirmed to have killed one person and suspected in two other cases, his involvement in the rest of the murders is unlikely due to the time where he was active. However, not impossible. The other person that was caught is Cody Lebakoff, who we discussed early earlier on. And okay, next we have uh, Clifford Olson, who's next up. We have Clifford Olson, who is a, another Canadian serial killer who I'm going to cover in another episode because he he might be suspected of some crimes in the area where I grew up, but. Moving on from that, again, he's never confirmed of to be related directly to any of these cases I've mentioned. So 
it's just speculation really and i he's he's been behind bars for quite a while i'm not sure if he's still alive i'll guess i'll find out when i research that but the one thing that this brings me back to is again time and time again and i can't escape is israel keys israel keys just seems to pop up everywhere because he literally was popping up fucking everywhere this guy is i'm just going to recap for people that haven't maybe heard about him but israel keys okay at the time in relation that we're going to talk about like the 2000s to two that when he was caught up 2012 he was operating he was living around anchorage alaska and the guy was he traveled all over he admits to being in british columbia he traveled all through canada u.s kind of thing the world he was even stationed in egypt at one point so his gross tentacles stretch around the world so keys is a name that resonates in true crime but the thing is that it's not like he's it's recent enough and there's so many unsolved crimes potentially linked to this guy that it just it seems hard to put a lot of his shit to rest so he's born in january 7 1978 in cove utah he's born into a fundamental christian family who's got some extreme religious beliefs he actually grows up he's neighbors to some people i think the kehoes the name was the kehoes and they were like essentially involves in some kind of crazy shootout they were basically another kind of set of famous criminals and yeah i don't know what kind of activities they got up to together but he is there is a connection there so in nine from 98 to 2001 key serves in the u.s army stationed in fort lewis washington and also in egypt his colleagues say they found him like just a regular dude nothing standing out of the ordinary and Essentially, it's believed from 2001 until his capture in 2012, he is perpetrating a ton of robberies, sexual assaults, and murders in the U.S. and potentially Canada. His approach was really cold-blooded and clinical. One of the most frightening aspects of Key's methodology is that he would murder kill kits or kill caches of buckets with guns and basically rape stuff like weapons things for disposing of bodies in these buckets he would bury them he'd bury them in areas years before he would commit his crimes and he wouldn't pick his victims based on anything other than he would say things like he preferred victims if he would see somebody of an opportunity he wanted them to be lightweight he liked to rape his victims and he liked to prey on couples he was really sick he would torture people as well so he didn't have a victim tight. He would just basically select people on opportunity. Were they in a remote area near one of his kill kits? And did they have something like an attached garage that he could easily break into? Like he would kill people in their homes. He'd dress up like homeless people to blend in and kill them. He, it was terrible. He would cover up his tracks by flying all over the place and renting cars, staying in different areas like driving a thousand miles to kill somebody, staying a thousand, couple hundred miles away. I can't remember in all the cases where he stayed, but it's truly terrifying what he would do and how he got away with it. But you can find out, we've covered him. We have a few more episodes up. And yeah, I recommend it if you want to know, if you want to know the more detailed things. So in relation to this, I just want to point out that he's finally caught after the murder of Samantha Koenig, whose victim, she he's one of Key's victims from Anchorage, Alaska at only 18 years old. He kidnaps her from a booth and he essentially murders her and disposes of her in her lake, cuts her up. He pretended she was alive to get ransom out of the family, even sewing her eyes open to take fake photographs. He eventually goes out ice fishing, cuts up her body, over a couple days of going out and just drops it down the fishing hole. Eventually her body is recovered by the police, but only after Keyes confesses to her murder. Like he's not a suspect in anything. And the only reason he gets caught after all these murders is from using Samantha's ATM card. And honestly, to this day, it still doesn't make a lot of sense for a guy to go to such lengths to hide his crimes that most of his crimes are completely undiscovered or they haven't even found bodies that he would just decide to start using somebody's ATM card to the point where he gets caught. He's known to have commit after, so he killed Samantha, but one thing he's also confirmed to have killed this couple, Bill and Lorraine Courier in Vermont. He breaks into their home in the middle of the night, t- 
ties them up, takes them to an abandoned farmhouse, shoots them and kills them after he sexually assaulted and tortured them. It He had buried a kill kit in that area years before. He flew into Chicago, rented a car, drove a thousand miles to Vermont and picks up a kill kit in Tupper Lake, New York. I think it was around there. And one thing to mention, he also owns a property in Constable, New York and admits which is an area known for illegal border crossings into Canada. So that's highly sus as well. And yeah, so he's up in that area years before and he murders these people with a kill kit buried. I think it was like two or three years before. There's no record of him being in the area because he flies into Chicago, stays in a hotel. And yeah, he just drives all over the place to the point where it really covered his tracks and nobody even considered looking at him. He only gets caught because he admits to it after the Koenig arrest because he figured the FBI was on to him. In addition to that, the FBI suspects him of committing a lot of other crimes. He is suspected of multiple bank robberies, sexual assaults, as I mentioned, but also the murder of Deborah Feldman. It is believed that Keyes may have murdered her in 2009 after she was abducted from her, after leaving her apartment at Hackensack, New Jersey. So Deborah was a sex worker. And again, like her, I don't think her disappearance got a lot of coverage, but Maddie Madison Scott is not a confirmed, is no one's ever confirmed that she's a, that he's suspected of her disappearance, but a lot of the online internet sleuth community has connected the two. Maddie disappeared during a very active period of Key's life. And it's also a period when he, like he would have these blackout periods. So the FBI has posted all the dates he's ever traveled or they could figure out. And what you'll see is that he knew enough to turn off his phone. He would conceal his tracks and he would essentially disappear for a short period of time. They were called the blackout times, and that seemed to be the times that would line up with his criminal activities, burying kill kits, murders, the list goes on. So he's suspected of this Maddie Geraldine Scott's disappearance. She, that is such, again, I have an episode on this, but her disappearance was terrifying. Her body's recently been found, but she disappears during a camping trip, like at a early summer party, like literally without a trace. She disappears when her friends go back to find her in the morning, her stuff is still there at this campsite where she camped by herself and all her stuff's there, but she's nowhere to be seen and just left so many unanswered questions. So I hope with the recent finding of her body, her family is going to get some closure, but yeah, like her disappearance definitely fit into keys MO where he was a remote area. There's an opportunity. The body is never found. And however, as if you listen to the episode I put up, there seems to be some other pretty plausible suspects potentially in that case, or at least some motives or not motives, sorry, some other theories that might have a little bit more weight. So it's definitely worth give it a listen if you don't mind. And up next we have here the Boca Raton crimes in Florida where Keys is suspected of a murder of a few people, Ann Mallets, Randy Ann Mallets, Gorenberg, and who was shot, and also Nancy Bocciccio and her seven-year-old daughter, along with Joey Bocciccio Hauser, again, who were all shot and killed. There is not, there's not a lot of information that definitively links Keys to any of this. However, the FBI has put out, pretty much put their majority of their investigation on the internet for people to see a lot of these connections. So it doesn't, surprise me that he could be involved in that case when you do the research which we will be covering that i'm just going to need a little bit more time next up we have cassie emerson and marlene k emerson who's 12 years old at the time of her disappearance and her mom was 29 they were found dead in 97 and 98 respectively the and keys admits to conducting his first act of arson it, near that area on a trailer in Colville, which lines up with these missing people who were found at separate times. So there's definitely a link there with keys, but it still remains unsolved, but it seems more likely that he is involved in that one. Especially if you listen to Keyes' interviews, there's so many hours of them. There's the things that are confirmed, like with the FBI, like there's, no doubt that he did some of the things that he says he did or alludes to. 
So one of the things I want to point out is that in relation to the highway tiers, one of the things that's eerie is that it's if you looked at Key's MO, it fits perfectly into what he would look for. Like it's a remote victims are random. There are people that probably won't be looked for. Women are lighter than men, like easier to kind of deal with. He admits to being in British Columbia at times. And he also is basically, yeah, like he's only living, I think 600 kilometers away. And if you look at his history and the way he traveled, like that's a nothing distance. Like this guy would be in Chicago and all of a sudden or drive to San Francisco and then over to Texas. And he would admit to also like chasing weather systems or trying to chase like hurricanes to go down when people were displaced and vulnerable to prey upon people. So there's no doubt that he's up to this stuff. So there's no doubt that the highway of tears, like I said, fits his kind of MO. There's a lot of speculation on the internet. I haven't seen a ton of evidence, but a lot of speculation. And it makes sense that only could other serial killers that he very well could have been active along the highway of tears. And actually, as you can see in my other episodes, like I'm going to get into other episodes, not just there. He literally across Canada, particularly in Ontario, because he had such easy access to it with his property in Constable, New York. And so I've gone through some of the victims that I was able to get from like Wikipedia and some of the sources and tie together as to why they might be tied to keys and particularly because they would fit into time periods that he would have been able to essentially, they would have been able to be his victims. So one of them is Beverly Warbeck. I cannot find a lot of information on her to, disappearance which is sadly the cases with a lot of these people because this is obviously before like social media times but also because of the in some cases like people were disappeared maybe they didn't have connections to their family or friends and they were just gone and in this case she disappears in june of 2007 but the thing is that keys from may to September, he's traveling back and forth between Seattle and Anchorage. So this falls right in the middle and right in a time period when he may have done it, but that's literally all the information I could find. Next up, we have Bonnie Marie Joseph, 32, missing from Vanderhoof, which is the notably the same place that Maddie Scott is from. So Bonnie is a mother of five, and she is last seen leaving last seen in Vanderhoof on the afternoon of September 8, 2007. She's seen by her cousin, Joanne. Joseph is seen hitchhiking from Vanderhoof to Prince George. She had court the next day. She was wearing, she was nearing the end of a series of court states to try and get her children back from like child services, of the government just point important point to mention that Indigenous children are taken out of their homes at an alarmingly higher rate than white kids. So that's been traditionally another issue that ties into the whole generational trauma. So she's reported missing on... So she was getting trying to get her children back, delete... So she's close to getting her children back. And again, she ne she's never heard from or seen from again. Her aunt, Rose Joseph, reported her missing. And please say that she did lead a high-risk lifestyle and was known to hitchhike between Fort St. James and Vanderhoof, British Columbia. Also Prince George. So she goes missing. Her family reports her missing. One of the things that's funny is that she was reported to the RCMP that like she had still had an uncashed check. So the narratives that were swirling around at Sino Lake is like, did she go missing or did she just leave? And to me, that's it's scary to think that oh, if it wasn't taken that seriously, I hope it was. I know it was a long time ago. And but one of the things that's notable to is that so she goes missing on September 8, 2007, and Keys is in Seattle on the 6th of September, and he's back in Anchorage for sure on October 29th, but between those dates, he's unaccounted for. So again, this falls into a time where Keys could have easily been active in that area, and unfortunately, we just don't 
get to know the answer and this person fell victim to something and it's truly a mystery. Then, okay, coming up, we have Emily Rose McLean. She is 16 and from Prince Rupert. In 2010, her body is found by a passerby on, I think it's Saturday, April 10th, 2010. Her body is submerged in the Prince Rupert in the harbor between Northwest Fuels Barge and the Oil Royal Ocean Royal Fish Plant. It was reported that McLean was with people the night before she was last seen alive. It was also reported that the people she was with that night were not people she trusted 100%. Someone, she said, I guess it was said she trusted some of them, but not all of them. An autopsy was performed indicates that her finding that like basically finds that she was it was a drowning death so the police haven't called this a homicide but they have said they also don't know they can't rule out foul play so there's this is a case where there's speculation again i come across on the internet there's nothing to really tie keys to this other than it fits the general kind of if you listen to the crimes that he committed like it fits into what he would do okay in terms of keys is said to have left florida in 2009 up to anchorage alaska on december 29th and he doesn't leave again until july 7th 2010 so he's in the vicinity but like when he's in anchorage he's only a few hundred miles away so this is during a blackout period again it doesn't necessarily mean that he's committing crimes but He's unaccounted for and somebody disappeared again. Oh, it didn't disappear, drowned. And one thing to note is he specifically talks about using water to dispose of and or kill his victims, especially related in remote areas. So yeah, like again, this fits his MO and I don't know the answer. And it also fits into a time when he's becoming active again, like really active and going on a spree. Next up, we have Linda Fredden, 56, and this is a homicide. Prince George, in 2010, her body is found. She is trapped in her wheelchair when her home was consumed by fire. She was transported to Vancouver General Hospital, where she dies three days later. Police believe that the crime could, the crime could have been linked to gang violence. This thing to note with Keys is that he, yeah, he liked arson and... This definitely fits into his MO. And so she goes missing in November. In October 25th, 2010, we have Keys, who is in Anchorage, Alaska, about a month for a disappearance. And he is there until the spring again when he takes off to where he goes on a murder spree in the continental US. It sounds to me from everything that I read that there were some other links to this that are more plausible. I think we had mentioned Maddie Scott. So like those are the victims that I could find that might be related to Keys, being that they're all like people in remote areas, people that kind of fit his MO where they, they were. So that's like things that I think could be tied to Keys regarding the Highway of Tears, but there's no like evidence linking them. I'm really hopeful that kind of as technology and, and continues to develop and we get more answers the police are still investigating a lot of keys's suspected crimes the fbi and the rcmp have confirmed that they have investigations so it's definitely if you happen to know something about somebody or you want to report it that's where you do it call those guys you can call crime stoppers whatever yeah but there's one other part that i want to mention besides the fact that we might have many like serial killers operating in a small area you might have random predation happening you might legitimately have a sm some of the percentage just disappearing on their own i doesn't seem very likely to me and then one thing that a lot of people suspect that could be involved is human trafficking so there's no doubt in my mind that human traffickers like serial killers again might see this as a area to find women that are already engaging in high-risk behavior of course that's what they call it hitchhiking and people that might kind of have social issues where they would make somebody that can be essentially lure them into the most common one of the more common things is like human trafficking is get them addicted to drugs then the next thing you know they're into like sex work and being essentially being prisoner to some kind of a pimp and then there's the other 
more horrible part of human trafficking, which is the organ market, which actually I'm excited to talk about, believe it or not, because I'm going to be bringing a guest on the podcast who was a former employee at a financial institution that was a fraud investigator. And a lot of the cases that they would investigate were related to the black market for organs and also sex trafficking as it relates to human trafficking. So that'll be coming up in the next few episodes and I look forward to bring it to you. But the human trafficking thing, what's the most fucking disgusting thing is it's so rampant today. And it's not just the, yeah, we've all seen the movie Taken where the young girl gets kidnapped. That's not how it always happens. So human trafficking involves the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or receipt of individuals through force, fraud, or coercion for their purpose of exploitation. So a lot of cases, it's not necessarily force. It's the coercion and fraud. They're lying to people. They're maybe given substances and then they exploit them because they need to rely on these people, whether they take their passports, God knows what else they do, intimidate them into basically doing whatever they want them to do. So there's a lot of things that are believed to cause human trafficking, but we're the fucking cause. <laughs> we support it every day with our decisions. We, you own an iPhone, you're supporting human trafficking. You can make that argument just because of the way the minerals are extracted from the earth and the people that are bought and sold into the lifestyle of <laughs> poverty mining for lithium. It's disgusting. As an environmental guy, it's got, it's, it's some of the worst human travesties are still occurring to this day just so we can have the luxuries that we want. But that's just a rant. So in terms of this, what is the cause of human trafficking? So there's a lot of studies on it, but socioeconomic factors. So we have poverty, lack of education, and limited employment resources, limited access to resources like public transportation. And all of this is just a breeding ground for human trafficking. We have gender inequality. So gender-based discrimination and inequality amongst the women and girls makes them more vulnerable to trafficking. And then armed conflict and instability. So you have areas of the world where there's political instability and or conflict that essentially can, it acts as like a storm, right? Of all those things going on that predators can swoop in and take vulnerable people. The same thing happens in Canada, except it's the armed conflict is drugs, is <laughs> drugs and social inequality. Like it's a, it is a fucking war. Like it is, I don't know if war is the right word. Like it's, it's a tragedy anyway, but like you have like communities that are in epidemics, like ravaged by drugs and conflict and suicide is a big one and mental health and systematic, like it just, yeah, like it's, it is that chaos. It is that chaos that allows predators to come in and take vulnerable people out of the communities, whether it's with promises of something better or physically just taking them. So in particular to the highway tiers, like one of the things that the human trafficking is those are some of the causes and what types of like, how are the victims exploited exactly? There's a few different ways. The first one being sexual exploitation. This is the one that we seem to see a lot of now nowadays where people involve essentially I'll look cut to the chase. It's just drugs. They get people addicted to drugs. And next thing, the girls are being, or it's not just girls, anybody, any gender is being subjected to prostitution, pornography, and being made to escort. Maybe they're providing sex tourism services. Like it's, that's money and they will traffic women to do this. Next up, we have organ trafficking, which we're going to get into in that episode, but this is something that's terrifying. And it is a very real thing. Don't kid yourself that, it doesn't happen. There's literally people selling baby parts on the internet right now as you speak. Uh, as you're sitting here, there's probably somebody getting killed for their organs. And yeah, this is happening constantly. And then we have child trafficking. Yes. So children are particularly vulnerable, basically their age. I guess they're lightweight. They're little frames. You can fit them in a suitcase, whatever. And <laughs> they can basically, yeah, like you have child labor, right? stuff like that's happening in the U.S. where child, children are being forced to work in fast food restaurants and such. And then you have, or mines, then you have childs that are, kids that are being made to be soldiers. 
And then, yeah, like the really dark part is they're all dark parts. But the really one, like the thing that freaks me out is, yeah, like the child pornography shit. There's so many movies about that. So it's all just horrible stuff, no matter what part of human trafficking there is. So human trafficking in Canada entails, again, like I said, the, the coercion, the transportation, transfer, and harboring of these people for the purpose of gaining money. And a lot of times they might actually like they might actually be trafficked by people that are close to them or known to them. That blows my mind. It's not that uncommon. But things that happen in Canada that, that make indigenous women trap like indigenous women are trafficked at a higher rate than other races in the country because of quite a few factors. And one of the some of the systematic vulnerabilities is child like things like child welfare. Indigenous women are indigenous children are disproportionately represented in the child welfare system, which makes them more susceptible to trafficking. And also the disruption, it disrupts their cultural practices, their family connections, and basically causes social exclusion. Traffickers exploit this trauma and literally, yeah, they exploit that trauma and use it to turn these people into victims. So in the reports I found on like online, there's some of the things that are highlighted. One is the housing inadequacy. This is a very real thing as somebody that's worked across Northern Ontario. When you visit indigenous, some of the indigenous communities, you can see a, it's like an invisible line of disparity. It is, and shit yourself. If you haven't been up to some of these like towns and places, don't believe the shit that you see where things are all right. Cause it's not. And there's communities that are literally in so much pain and trauma that they can't take care of some of the basic needs for their residents. So then you have housing inadequacies. If you've been to some of the Northern reserves in Ontario, where first nation people are located, you can see that there's an housing inadequacy. Like they just don't get the same supports that are given everywhere else in the country. And it's, there's like an invisible line or barrier. You can see when you cross onto some of the places where there's still this like healing from the, all the trauma going on, the, like you can feel it when you drive into these places, but you can also see it because the communities, like the buildings are in poor repair. There is dogs running around everywhere without, they don't belong to anybody. There's not safe drinking water. There's no laws really stopping people, like in some cases from whether it's chemical spills or oil spills or like throwing trash around. So it's just, there's nobody there to, there's no support for a lot of the basic things that we get and they don't have it. And it's very evident that they don't have it. So I would like to see that they do someday, like tomorrow, maybe. But yeah, I don't know how it would be fixed, but it's very evident that it exists. So the disconnection from land and community, this happened from the displacement of indigenous people from their homes and communities, not just from environmental factors, like Canada's changed right where they live. We've built up metropolitan centers that have basically disrupted their historical cultural practices, but also we tried to call like when we colonize them, we tried to also essentially make them just like white people and disrupted their entire culture. It was really bad. So yeah, all those lead to, those are all factors into why indigenous women are trafficked more often than other demographics. So some of the methods to be aware of, if you know somebody, this doesn't just apply to indigenous women, but does, um, we're going to be talking about it in that context. So traffickers, Often one of the things that they'll do is they'll groom people by maybe they're give them some nice gifts, offer them a nice place to leave, whether it's big drugs in a lot of cases, basic place to stay, shelter, all those things, and then make them think that they're their friend until they can take it all away. And then in the sex trade too, it's noted that indigenous women are disproportionately targeted for sexual exploitation. This is often they're doing prostitution services or escorting and then the human traffickers come in because they see their ads or like whatever then they're trafficked as a prostitute who's already prostituting and i don't they whether they hurt them they do it's just bad that is bad 
So then you also have in Canada something that is forced labor and domestic servitude. So this does happen where Indigenous women are trafficked into industries such as agriculture, construction, hospitality, or domestic work. This can be, they can be kept there through psychological abuse, debt, and bondage. So yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, sad thing. The other thing that happens is recruitment through social media to be aware of. So like, there's where a lot of people, the lure got girls off of Facebook. There's quite a few f- cases actually that I know that came to light from the CBC where people have been trafficked or hurt through the being lured off social media, especially young women that might be a little bit more naive. One more famous case is of Bridget Perrier. She was an Anishinaabe woman who was the victim of human trafficking. She was a, adopted in Thunder Bay, Ontario, and was introduced to the sex trade while living in a group home. She was only 12 years old when she was recruited by a woman who ran a brothel. Here she experienced horrific events, one of them where she was held captive for 43 hours while being raped and tortured. Following her time at the brothel, she worked under a pimp who then moved her to Toronto, threatening her with violences, violence and beatings if she disobeyed him. Her life took a turn after the death of her son, and when she was 16, she finally decided she was going to push her way out of the industry. Eventually, she co-founded something called Sex Trade 101, which is an anti-trafficking and lobbying organization. So that's just an example of the, one of the many stories that are out there where First Nation women are led away from their lives because they were put in a vulnerable situation. That's terrible. In Canada, so there is a lot of efforts underway currently in Canada to start combating this. The Canadian government has enacted legislation to protect the protect for the protection of communities and exploited persons. There is preventative measures that are coming it like that have came out that help people learn about human trafficking and also trying to educate some of the younger people that could be victim to it. And I know that the MIWG like movement has really brought to light, like to the public, some of these like issues that are going on and inequality experienced by indigenous Canadians and indigenous people abroad. But it's truly, it's terrifying to me, like how long it went on. So I'm glad that, okay, we know all this stuff is out in the open now and we're working toward, I just hope that what we're doing to work on fixing it actually works, but there's some really cool people out there. If I'm going to put some links in my episode where you can learn a little bit more about this stuff. And I really suggest you do because as an adult Canadian, what's really happened is way different than what we were taught in school. And I think you might learn something if you're like me, where you know, maybe later in life, you just start reading into some of this stuff and it, well, it took me for a bit of a journey and it's terrifying. It's terrifying to think that it's going on right now as we speak, not just against indigenous women, but like everywhere. So thank you again. Please check out our website, makingfunofdeadpeople.com. We're going to be jumping into some episodes. I want to cover the Franklin expedition in the Arctic. And we're also going to be looking at the global pandemic of kind of pandemic epidemic i don't know of human trafficking as it relates to the organ trade and probably the world economic forum ah, <laughs> oh god okay thank you again